The word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Well, we're going to continue the theme today. Um, I really want to continue to learn more and more about the way in which AI is impacting our workforce, the way in which we think about career paths for those that are early into their career, those in the educational side, trying to support uh, and backfill and create a backstop maybe um, in the way in which we think about education, the way in which we support the needs of, of um, manufacturing and retail, innovation, technology, healthcare. Uh, and the like. And so we're going to go straight to an incredible source. We're going to be speaking with Alex Swartzel. She's the managing director of insights at Jobs for the Future, JFF, as many of you know, uh, and their labs and JFF's Center for Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Work. Uh, she worked to Teach for America for quite some time and was also a senior advisor uh, to U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, a number of years ago uh, also. Alex, it's so nice to spend some time with you. I know that JFF has had a recent report come out um, I think this is, look, I'm speaking for myself, I think not just as a parent, but as someone who has been fortunate enough to interview people on the AI side of things. I was just in Stockholm, Sweden, talking about sustainability with the crown princess, the future queen of Sweden, and all of these dignitaries. And AI was the number one topic, the number one topic, Alex. <laughs> um, sort of orient me, if you will, and or calm me down, maybe, because... <laughs> <laughs> um, for those that are in the know, or relatively, at least we're sort of in the the environment or the the zip code of AI and maybe the applications, uh, there is a, there is a growing concern that we are ill prepared to understand the impacts, both positive and potentially negative, if it means that that takes away a job or an opportunity of AI. And I'm finding this sort of wide swath of understanding of also sort of where we are. Like I'll have some folks that may be a soccer practice where you have parents who think, oh, that's so far off into the future. <laughs> and I think, mm, not really. Uh, and then you have other conversations and inter interviews with people like Hadi Partovi of code.org and Conrad Wolfram of Wolfram Alpha. And it's here. And mm -hmm. it is changing even in the, the, you know, within the context of this preamble here to our conversation. So set the stage for me. Where are we with regards to AI with or under the umbrella of, the job sector and what we should be thinking about. Yeah, it's such a great question, Ron. And thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you and with your audience. You know, I think one of the things that stands out to me so much, even now a year into the generative AI explosion, which as you know, is, is just the tip of the iceberg of technological developments that have been underway for some time. It still feels like the conversation is so binary. This is either the savior of all of us or it's an extinction level event. And it'll probably not surprise you that, that our view on this is that it is a little bit more complicated than that. And while nuance, you know, is always tricky in, in today's world, that sometimes I think the, the number one thing for that is helpful for folks um, is just to come at this with an appreciation for the fact that it is it is a little nuanced, it is a little complicated, um, but that we can work through it together. And that the most important thing really is to do what I think your audience and a lot of the folks that you're speaking to are, are doing now, 
which is just to learn what you can, right? To get your arms around how this space is, is continuing to evolve. Um, because, you know, AI has been with us for some time. You know, it's in probably every app on your phone. It's in Google Maps. It's in all kinds of places. But it, it is now front and center in the palm of our hand through technologies like ChatGPT and other large language models um, that are really helping people understand in a new way just how transformative this can be for, for particular kinds of tasks. And so this one of the most salient questions for us at Jobs for the Future, as you alluded to in your introduction, is how is this going to implicate jobs and skills? Um, and so, as you mentioned, we've done some recent research on this that I'm excited to dig into. But I think in this in this stage setting place, the headline is really this idea of it's it's coming, but it, the wave hasn't crested yet. And now is really the opportunity for all of us to get our arms around this technology, not just what it can do today, but what we think it's going to be able to do in the future, and to start to make meaning of it for ourselves in the context of our own lives and our own institutions, both from the perspective of you know being mindful of the concerns and challenges, but also thinking about some of the opportunities as well, which we think are going to be really tremendous. You know, I mentioned earlier, Alex, uh, when I interviewed Hadi Partovi of Code.org, and Hadi said something to me that has really stuck, which was, it was, it was a message to me, but I think it was really sort of a message to the masses, which is, we are at the slowest point of in innovation we will ever be at right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was really sort of moving sort of the, 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 um, the, the field of play there to say, well, wait a minute, we think it's going fast, but this right now is the slowest point. And so if that, if we go with that premise, Alex, I think one of the things to what you were saying there is it's not that maybe we want to have the answers or that we have to know exactly what it can do or where it's going to be applied to our lives, but it's understanding that application in a sort of broad sweeping way that says, do I need to ask better questions? Do I need, like, how should I be in essence looking at this? It's almost like an art form that is new. And we're a bunch of school kids on a field trip and wondering sort of, well, how do we understand this, what is being told to us as art? Because if we have an understanding of potentially what to look at, maybe we can then apply our minds, our, our histories, our legacies, our skill sets, and in combination, figure out this relationship. Because this feels like, I know this maybe sounds a little too maybe Hollywood in this way, but it is a bit like developing a relationship, a new relationship and trying to understand the nuance and sort of where do I fit as an individual? Not just maybe what it's going to do, but can I even, can I ascertain the value or the nuance of that individual? I put that in quotes, being the generative AI within the context of what I know to be human and sort of my daily life. Yep. Yeah. I love that framing. And I think that is actually the way to go about it, that it's, it's a combination of both understanding the technology at a high level, especially, you know, we all can, there are increasing numbers of resources out there that will walk people through, you know, what is the family of technologies that is AI? What is a large language model, right? These kinds of things for, for people, we know everyone's learning style is different, but for people who have, who find it helpful to have that initial grounding in the technology as such versus this is how you use any one application of the technology, right? That's, I think that's one piece that's important. But the other piece is exactly what you just said, which is for each of us to start to test this out in our own lives. And that really is the, the remarkable innovation over the last year that this one form of AI, which is incredibly powerful, is now accessible to all of us for free. We, any one of us can try it out. 
And, you know, yeah, there, there are ways in which you want to be thoughtful about how you use those tools, whether it's being careful about inputting private information into a generative AI model, for example. But in some cases, I feel like I've learned the most by going to one of those tools with something that I want to do or with a problem that I want to solve and seeing how it does, right, to test it. Because in many ways, that's how this technology is not just going to keep evolving fast, which is helpful, but is going to evolve in a way that is really inclusive of the experiences of all of us, is if each one of us says, what if it can do this? I have this thing that I'm trying to do. I have this problem I'm trying to solve. I have this thing that I wish were easier in my life. You know, what if this technology could help me do this? Because in some cases, it will be able to do it, you know, quickly and easily today. It could probably write a pretty solid first draft, you know, as I'm sure every student is experiencing today of a paper or in a professional setting of an email, of a memo, for example. Is it going to be great today at writing the final draft of that thing? No, right? We still need to be able to bring our own experiences and knowledge to help the tool, you know, collaborate with us to create the best possible outcome. But only by experimenting with it um, and there's no right or wrong, I think, use case for it, at least in some of this initial experimentation. Just I would encourage folks to try it out um, with whatever question is most salient to you with, you know, a set of guardrails in your own mind about, you know, citations are not necessarily a thing yet in generative AI, right? <laughs> this is it's more about creation of content and ideas than it is necessarily about fact checking, for example. But I, but I think that that combination of a high level understanding of what the technology is as a family of tools, and then trying it out for questions or, or challenges that feel really salient in each of our own lives, that will help people learn very quickly um, what it can do today and what some of the promise might be for the future. So if we think about our economy or even the global economy, right, sort of the, the underpinnings of that will be an education system um, and a, a higher education system that provides the, the canvas with which a young person or an early career person can start to understand, uh, iterate through different experiences to then apply into a field, right? So that we have a, a healthy sort of nourishing economy of work. Um, but there are great assumptions in that, right? There are assumptions that we understand what's here today will be there potentially tomorrow, maybe not in five, 10 years, but enough runway that we have to develop a workforce for a given sector. Uh, that may be a little bit different now in that manner, right? So I do guest lecturing at Vanderbilt's business school. And those students earlier in August were saying to me off, sort of off to the side, they're nervous about the financial sector and how AI will impact that. We've had the Google CEO talk about that and architecture and other sort of fields, um, uh, professional fields that may be impacted and, and significantly so. Um, how should we be thinking about it from a jobs perspective? And then I would love to tie that into the research and some of the questions that were being explored, which is to say, should we be thinking about or re-examining, maybe auditing skill sets, not jobs, skill sets? Yep. And if that's the case, can we provide some guidance so that our young people, even middle schoolers, that their education is being, I guess, filtered through this, what we know is already here and only going to develop and get more refined. Uh, I sit there as a parent and say, wow, if we're going to teach coding, is that a skill that is 
at extinction level, to, to use your earlier phrase. Because if we have the sort of the proverbial answer, do I want my child focused on something that can be generated in a nanosecond mm -hmm. and then maybe tested against to see the sort of the applicability of it? But that would would require different skill sets. So talk about sort of the difference between skill sets and jobs and yep. the bigger questions that were asked and deployed through this research. Yeah, that's such an important question. So, I mean, I think the the simplest place to start is a pretty simple one, which is jobs are bundles of tasks and skills, right? I mean, you and your job in a day-to-day -day way go through a number of different activities that draw on a number of different skill sets. So do I. You know, that's that's true of virtually every job that exists today and will only become more true as jobs in, increase in complexity, I think, as they have been over time. Um, and so the core of our research, which is called the AI Ready Workforce, it's a report that we released right at the beginning of November of, of this year, 2023, um, gives a new lexicon, really, a way of thinking about the impact that AI will have on certain common sets of skills that show up in jobs all across the economy. Um, as JFF, we focus a lot on jobs that are especially accessible to people, often people without bachelor's degrees. So think, you know, nursing occupations, retail sales positions, for instance, um, you know, software developers and coders is another great example. Um, and all of those jobs involve a different mix of tasks and skills. Um, if you're a nurse, for instance, you're spending some of your time caring for patients. You're also spending some of your time engaged in record keeping of some kind, right? Um, and I think the, the the new pieces that we were able to pull out through this research was a new way of thinking about how AI is going to impact those different sets of activities. A lot of what we've seen in the research to date is talking about how much of a job will be automated, right? 10%, 80% of a job. And I, the question we started asking ourselves was automated how, right? Because especially as we start to understand the the, the ways in which AI is showing up um, today, the way it could show up tomorrow, we recognize that automation has a different impact based on the nature of the task and the way that an AI system or another automated system might interact with that task. So for example, if you are, for instance, you know, doing a lot of routine assembly or other kind of manual or repetitive tasks that could very easily be done maybe by an artificial intelligence system, maybe by a robot that's driven by an artificial intelligence system, um, over time, it's increasingly likely that that task will be replaced by an automated system of some kind. Um, there are also tasks where people are collaborating with machines. Um, for instance, like handling hazardous materials where the machine might do it, but it really needs a human eye um, to help direct it, make sure that it goes to the right place. Um, so there is, we think there will be a lot of different types of work that is replaced displaced or complemented by automated tools. But we also think there's this other component, and I think, especially as we're thinking about the future of education, this is the place to focus. We believe there will also be tasks and skills that are elevated or augmented by AI or other forms of automation. And these include in the, in the these are, we think of them as two separate categories. In the elevated category, these include things that are deeply human or deeply interpersonal skills like building relationships, negotiating between human parties, staffing up offices or organizational units, or even things like motivating and coaching teams. Those are the kinds of things that 
you know, a chat bot could give you a script. They could give you a bunch of options for how to have a conversation with somebody that you're working with, for example. Um, they could give you a strategy, but you as the human being still have to be the one to have the conversation or to land the plane on the strategy. Um, because there is all, we believe there's always going to be work that must be done by humans or will always be of higher value when it's done by people. Um, or there are tasks that we think will be augmented by AI, including complex cognitive or analytical skills like analyzing systems, like public speaking, um, planning and organizing work, critical thinking, which again are, are opportunities where AI can give you a lot of the background, they can help support you, but there's always going to be an aspect of human judgment. Just like if you're looking at that, if you're the high school student looking at that draft paper, you can get AI to write it, but if before you decide whether or not you're going to turn it in, you have to give it a read to say, I think this is on the right track. I think this is meeting the assignment. I'm going to edit it in this particular way to reflect my voice, for example. So under that distinction, I think it's going to be really critical, not just for today, but for the way the jobs will evolve over time. And the bottom line for us is that we are hoping that whether it's, it's people out in the workforce, whether it's leaders that are shaping organizations or folks that are, are developing educational systems or training opportunities, the more that we can double down on those core human complex analytical cognitive skills that fall sort of at the very the very top of the model that are skills that can be elevated or augmented by AI. Those are the skills that will remain resilient throughout this transition and that will help keep people res resilient as their jobs evolve over time. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now back to our guest. Alex, so much of work is culture and fit and sort of this uh, maybe old school American ideal, which is sort of the family element of where you work because we spend so much time in our jobs. Even, and now even if it's remote. Have we started to think about the impact an AI world or layer will have on us culturally, meaning forever we have based our value on what we contribute or produce. Now, we are not a sort of a, a widget that produces something, but in some instances that may or may not be more accurate than not. I'm curious if AI, take it from an augment, augmented perspective, if it allows me to, in essence to do more, okay, again, a broad sweeping sort of application of this. Will the understanding of what my value is have to change as well? Meaning, will I have to produce, again, in air quotes, more because I've had the assistance? Um, does my workday potentially change? I mean, we've already been at a 24-7 type of clip here in the U.S. Um, but if I can produce more or cut down the amount of time and inputs that I have to put into a system based on what my role produces – I'm wondering if there's going to be sort of this one sliver when it comes to mental health and understanding sort of the, the implications of changing the value proposition of my existence within a given company. And that that's going to be something that I hope I'm wrong, but would lag behind in our sort of understanding of a world that we are entering in now. Yeah. I mean, so none of us knows, right, how the world is going to evolve. But I, in many ways, I think this is the most important question that we have to ask and the most important choice that we have to make now. Because I do think there is a there is a direction 
um, that a lot of automation, especially the earliest days of assembly line automation has led to in the past, which is more, more equals more efficient, more quantity, you know, more, more, more produced, um, more and more of our time being taken over by work. But I actually think that because the heart of this question around AI it is, I think, enabling us to ask the question much as you did in a different way, which is to say there is we now can actually draw a real distinction between machine work and human work rather than, as you said, thinking of human workers as just another kind of widget off an assembly line, making trying to orient all of our efforts around productivity, efficiency towards making humans work more like machines. We now are going to have a generation of machines that can work a lot like humans um, to an extent, right? And I, I think there's always going to be to an extent where there is a, an X factor that is truly human. I think it's often going to be in terms of where humans are interacting with other humans or making those core decisions that, that put those skills or tasks into those top two categories that I talked about a minute ago. But what that allows us to do as a society is to start to make a choice and to allow the conversation to diverge in a different way, where we can start to think of work that is machine work. It is not important enough to be done by humans. It can be delegated to a machine. Um, and we can even interrogate whether or not we need to do it. We'll see if that happens or not, or if it just creates more. But then my real hope is that we start to make some really thoughtful decisions about work that is important enough to only be done by humans, must be done by humans. And thus, what is the value of the humans doing that work? Which I think allows us to start to think about our time differently, but also starts to think about the nature of work and who does it. Look at especially American society today and the kinds of caregiving roles, education roles that really double down on these kinds of core human and interpersonal skills. Those jobs are overwhelmingly performed by women. They're performed by people of color. Often they are not well compensated. They are employing people from low-income communities um, and not always creating pathways out to, to more and more economic opportunity. But if we can start to shift the paradigm and say, it is that human work that has to have a human to do it, that can only be done with a human voice and a human heart and a human set of hands, how then must we value that work? And what does that mean for the quality of those jobs and the way in which we support those workers? Again, I can't predict that that's the direction that we're definitely going to go, but I think the conversation is opened up by this technological development in a way that it, it should have been for a, a much longer time, but uniquely is today. I think that's exciting. I think it is exciting. I would also contend that there's an element potentially, and I'll say, you don't have to say it, but feel free to tell me I'm, I'm off the ranch on this, is that if we want to be realistic, and we have learned, I mean, hopefully we can apply generations of sort of trial and error and going, eh, this worked, it didn't work kind of a thing and say, wait a minute, how do we understand safeguards mm -hmm. when it comes to our economy and our job creation and economic opportunity to continue to grow and progress down whatever line you want to define as success as an individual or a company? Are we, if we don't ask those critical questions, are we at risk? We're already been sort of wiping out the middle class. And if I sort of take that thinking, I do then, I start to get a little cloudy here, like the clouds are rolling in a little bit. And I just want to think about safeguards to say, if we're not careful, we will potentially create this 
chasm, unbelievable chasm between the haves and the have-nots based on the way in which we have all learned or the access, right? The sort of the requisite access and equitable um, educational opportunities that we've had, whereby if we're going to alter our education so that, you know, those that have access and resource, they will be able to adapt. They'll be able to pivot and apply sort of these, these neural pathways in different ways and, and mannerisms to fit an AI world where, what about middle management and all the things that potentially would be wiped away? Because where are you going to look for cost savings at your highest level of employee? That's not your leadership. And so if that's the case, I do then think we've got to think about safeguards and the way in which we, you know, it's, it's like when you, when you're around young people and you say like, well, what do you, you know, what's your dream? What do you aspire to be? Right. I think about that as a parent and say, I want to make sure that they're dreaming about things that are either that there's a potential is there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I don't know where that sits for you, but trying to understand safeguards so that as we're developing and increasing our, our capabilities, we're also of the mind that, okay, for every good, I mean, what are we sort of, what are we swapping in and out? Right. We can only yeah. have sort of 10 all-stars. And if we start to move them around, who are we taking off that list? Yeah, it's a really important question, right? And I and I think um, a lot of the safeguards are going to need to emerge, both in conversations like this and in conversations across our economy, really, as the norms within civil society for how this technology is used continue to develop. Um, these are these are also much bigger questions that have been plaguing our society for far too long that we don't have great answers to. Um, to me, AI is not the answer to these kinds of challenges. It, it, it can be an extraordinary tool if we think of it the right way. To me, you know, maybe the most important safeguard is almost, you know, the Hippocratic Oath. It's a do no harm safeguard that we, that AI must always be a tool in service of human beings um, and in service of creating a better life for all of us, not just for the most privileged. Um, and to, that's a very lofty thing to say. Um, and it's very difficult to pass legislation or, or put regulations in place to enforce that. Um, but that's it, that will be true if it is the product of a lot of micro choices and macro choices every day in terms of how individual ind individual people and organizations are starting to put these tools in place. But I think the more that whether it's an employer, whether it's a post-secondary institution, really any organization thinking about using this tool is asking those questions. How is this making my people's lives better? How is it advancing my mission without undermining the people that are at the heart of the work that I do? How am I making sure that everyone's privacy is being protected? How am I making sure when we think about equity that the out, not just the inputs into, but the outcomes of this tool are equitable, are not reinforcing systemic equities that are absolutely baked into the core operating models of all of these systems? Um, but need to be rewired in ways that are really important. You know, I think these, we are still at an age where we are making human choices about how to use these machines, because that is what they are. They are machines. Um, and the more that we can center human stories, ideas, aspirations, and goals of your family and everyone else's family that's asking themselves these same questions, um, those are the choices that we have to make. And I think that the more of us who are engaged in these kinds of conversations, who are asking themselves exactly the questions that you're posing and are, are when they have an opportunity to make a choice, are choosing in favor of 
center human beings, center the human experience, use this to expand opportunity for more people rather than contract it. That's really hard work and it was going to take a lot of time. To me, that's the only way um, that we create the kind of world that is is very, very possible, but you know, that we're still working on after many, many decades um, of being engaged in this kind of a society and this kind of an economy. It feels like we, this is an information war, but it wouldn't be cast as that. We wouldn't see that on a playbill. But to me, this is about it. It's an information war to understand sort of what is authentic versus what is synthetic, yep. the origins of that, how we break down and understand the application. And can we get by that maybe it was generated from machine, uh, if you will. I, I noticed the news that in California, they're going to be requiring a fake news class um, in high school. And to me, that's a wonderful step forward. I also think that a parallel class would be something around sort of like a like an ethics class in AI, start having the younger generation ask questions of applicability. Because to your point, we don't have the answers. We do not know where this path is going. Um, and you, we can't just sort of hand this hot potato off. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, let, let me close with this, Alex. I, I'm very curious if we think about sort of your background. And I, I think you're an incredibly powerful, and I mean that in, a very, in the best sense of the word, position in what you're doing and what JFF is doing, because we've got to rely on thoughtful questions uh, and minds to be able to explore these uncharted water, waters. You come from a background at Teach for America, which people are on both sides, but it's very progressive and it's tried to do a lot of things to uh, democratize, you know, education um, and and access you also obviously worked for a brief time with, with Senator Warren, who is known for, for going sort of in gale force winds and, and explore our debt and, and call all these sorts of sort of big questions. Um, do you pull from those experiences when you think about your role at JFF and now what you're doing and applying your skill sets to an AI world? Yeah, I mean, let me let me maybe close by saying what brought me to JFF and what gets me out of bed every morning, which I think has been our careers always make sense in retrospect and has been a through line throughout my career, which is this really core idea, which feels to me like a moral obligation to make sure that opportunity is more equally distributed than it is today. Um, I believe, as I think probably everyone who listens to this podcast believes that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And the more that we can create a world where every single one of us has the opportunity to live into our genius, to contribute to society in a way that is, is meaningful to us and helpful to our society, um, and to, to live the lives that we would wish to live as human beings on the earth. That is incredibly motivating to me. And the way in which JFF works on these kinds of challenges by both centering the importance of a quality job as the mechanism by which most of us, you know, ain't ain't what's the word I'm looking for, earn or gain the resources that we need to be able to secure our financial future and that of our family, uh, the more that we can make work work for all of us and to create those kinds of opportunities in a way that is deeply equitable, that is extremely energizing for me. And to me, I, I do this work on AI because I see AI as a powerful tool in service of that goal. But one where, as, as we've said throughout this conversation, we have to make the right choices along the way and we have to ask the right questions. And at this stage, 
especially thinking about it in the context of education, that skill of being able to bring the right questions to the table, to persist when you're not getting an answer that's satisfactory to you, and to look for opportunities to exercise your own agency in shaping the future that we're all stepping into, that's all that any one of us can do in this world or in, in any of our lifetimes. And my hope is that in continuing to sharpen that certainly as a skill set, but also as a motivation for each of us in our work day to day. That's the secret. That's going to be what it takes as as this technology evolves and as the society in which the technology is situated continues to evolve. That's going to get us on the direction towards a society of greater equity and greater opportunity for everybody. Well, I'm glad you're in that in that spot. I know people can't see this, but just the energy with which you even responded to that question, you can tell it's it's a, it's your passion. Um, and we need people who are passionate about this that are not just sort of about the ones and zeros. This is about this is about humans. It's about lives. It's about collaboration, family, and community. And I think that you bring uh, you bring a lot of powerful uh, value and background and legacy into what you're doing. And it's going to be important for all of us to pay attention to what JFF uh, is up to in supporting a healthy economy for all. We want to thank Alex Swartzel. She's the Managing Director of Insights at Jobs for the Future Labs and JFF's Center for Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Work. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.